Hey, welcome back to Future Thinkers. Today, our guest is Daniel Christian Wall, uh, who is a biologist, educator, whole systems designer, and author of Designing Regenerative Cultures. In this episode, we talk about what being regenerative actually means in practice, how different ways of knowing affect the way that we act in the world and design our communities, the role of humans on planet Earth, and the importance of being in right relationship with technology, nature, and the processes of life as a whole. This is actually one of our favorite episodes that we've done recently, and we hope that you enjoy it too. To hear the whole two-hour version of this conversation, become a member at futurethinkers.org slash members, and you can find the show notes for this episode at futurethinkers.org slash 131. We also have a Q&A coming up with Daniel on October 29th at 11 a.m. Pacific, and you'll be able to ask him questions and participate in the conversation on the Zoom call, and you can RSVP for that at futurethinkers.org slash wall, which is spelled W-A-H-L. If you want to follow the conversation about smart villages and regenerative practices, join our monthly Smart Village Summit on October 28th at 4 p.m. Pacific, where we will be joined by James Ehrlich from Regen Villages and other surprise guests in the regenerative and smart village space. You can RSVP by going to futurethinkers.org slash summit. And if you're interested in learning more about the regenerative smart village that we're building in British Columbia, Canada, you can go to futurethinkers.org slash village. We're currently in the middle of fundraising to purchase the land. So if you or someone you know is interested in investing in the project, click the contribute button and fill out the form there. If you just want to help out with the project, one of the best ways to do that is to share the page with your network. Okay, let's get into the show. Hey, this is Future Thinkers, where we talk about how to adapt to a changing world, build more resilience, upgrade culture and society, and create meaning and purpose. With your hosts, Mike Gitteland and Yuvi Ivanova. So Daniel, welcome to the show. It's awesome to have you. We're diving into your book right now. We've got a theme in our community right now about, um, well, last month was indigenous cultures. This month is all about uh, building smart villages. So we've also got a book club and your book is highlighted this month. So we're excited to have you on and talk to you about designing regenerative cultures. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to getting to know you and sort of following your post, but excited to learn more. Yeah, um, we were chatting a little bit before uh, the start of the podcast and uh, we're talking about how becoming parents has affected our worldview for, for you and, and for us. So I'd love to uh, continue on that train of thought. Um, you know, we talked about living in deep time, uh, thinking about seven generations ahead and seven generations that came before. Uh, and so how has becoming a parent affected your work? Well, in many ways, it's been a reminder of something that has already been nagging me for a while. Like um, I moved to Mallorca 10 years ago because it's, for me, islands are perf perfect um, case studies for bioregional regeneration because you don't have the whole issue about where does the bioregion uh, bio end and where does it start. Um, when your feet get wet, you're off the bioregion. And um, initially, I spent a lot of time working with the local community on like mapping Mallorca and, 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 and only taking on work that was Mallorca focused. And, um, and then somehow through the work on my book and then the publication of my book, the last four years, I've been very off island also because it's, it's honestly, it's much easier to earn an income that, 
way than rather than try to get jobs on island. And um, so I, I already before my daughter was born, I wanted to find a better balance, come back home to place. And, and in many ways, what she's teaching me every day is this wonderful direct connection to the present moment to like she's she's like a mirror to me to how much after 20 years as a futurist and like I, I sometimes joke like maybe I'm not, I'm not called Daniel for nothing maybe there was a sort of synchronicity Daniel in the Old Testament is the prophet of the apocalypse of Babylon there's a black black stone ro rolling in a Babylon like in the reggae songs um, I I've lived the last whatever yeah, but basically most of my adult since my teenage life is feeling like this world that we're living in the pattern that I'm being brought up in in this Western culture isn't going to last and something fundamentally has to change. And I became a biologist because I wanted to understand life better. And um, I'm digressing a bit, but I'm wanting to make this point really strongly that for me, what's happening since Lucia's been born is this deep question that while I, all my work is about the future and, and, and creating conditions conducive to life and the hopefulness of a future of diverse regenerative cultures everywhere becoming all custodians of the bioregions they live in and, 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 um, and regenerating ecosystems and, and, and community cohesion, all of that, it's very futures oriented. And because I'm also aware that as part of that future being able to be born, there's a lot of collapse that goes on around it and breakdown is already happening. And it's it's part of um, disconnecting the complex dynamic systems um, kind of stayed and old and no longer serving patterns and connections and then enabling the creativity at the edge of chaos to reconfigure. I can, I can think of all that, yeah? but um, there's also deep uncertainty in whether we're actually gonna make it through this. Like the, the, the core of a rite of passage in indigenous wisdom is that you have to have that, that little bit of doubt of whether you're gonna make it or not. Like when you're out there in the desert fasting for, for, for four nights and four days, um, there comes that point of this, oh, I'm just, is my heart just going to kick out or I can't move my tongue anymore and I need something to drink. And in a similar way, I think we as a species are going to be pushed to that rite of passage type level. And, and that, coming back to your question now, um, is asking me sometimes, like I, I ask my wife, what if these are the fat days? What if, if these are the days of plenty and of joy and abundance and communities and meaning and still being able to do what you love doing and make, make a living, not a fortune with it? Um, wouldn't it be horrible if we spent all these days worried about the future, planning, anxious, networking to bits, not having enough time for seeing the beauty of the flower, um, lying on the back in the grass and just appreciating gravity, like the Aboriginals say that gravity is the earth hugging you. you if you really sense into gravity, you, you, are, you are loved, you are held, you are important. And, 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 but it takes time to slow down enough that you can feel that holding. And from there, I think we can build a regenerative future. But, but my daughter is the big reminder that my mind should just 
shut up sometimes and that all this I have to do and this project and well, that's a great opportunity. I can't say no. Actually, the art for me more and more is learning to say no to all these things to just repattern the future in the present. Like the, this, like I work a lot with friends in, in H3Uni and, and the International Futures Forum with this notion of the future potential of the present moment. And if you think about it, the only time you can ever change the future is right now. And right now again and again and again, like it's, it's never anywhere else. And, and so if we, in everything we think, say, and do, repattern the patterns of the past, we're not going to change the pattern to have a different future emerge. And, and for me, being with my daughter and, and being responsible for her future and, and also much more for my family and the connections that then start, that starts bringing to community, other children's parents suddenly become really important. And so you naturally are invited into building community as they go into schooling or homeschooling or whatever you decide and 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 that's i find that journey really exciting but but i'm also realizing that that will mean that i just have to stop doing what we're doing right now like constantly being on podcasts or giving webinars or talks or writing stuff on the internet all the time i just have to get back to doing the things that that really matter Oops, I, sorry for the long answer. <laughs> i really feel what you're saying there because yeah. uh, you know i'm I'm having a hard time reconciling the need to be in this kind of goal-oriented, hard-headed, maximize every minute of the day mode in order to get the smart village built that we're trying to build so that I can stop living that way. And it feels like, or or at least reduce the necessity for living that way. And it feels like the answer that I'm coming to if I want to start living in that way now is to engage community more and be in community more like it's it's ironic that the answer is so logical and next step in the process of building the smart village because one person can't possibly do it all and it becomes this whole game a competitive dynamic type of thing if one or a small group of people are trying to do more than than what they're capable of so this yeah it's, it's becoming more and more evident especially as we've been working like crazy in the last several months that the community, like decentralizing this whole process is, is critical. But, but, but that's, it's, I don't know to what extent you, you know much about my trajectory over the last um, 20 years, but I am, before I came here to Mallorca, which was almost 10 years ago, I spent four years living in um, Findhorn, an eco-village in the north of Scotland. And um, the six years leading up to that, like, like basically in, 1999, I moved to southern Spain to try to set up an eco-village, an environmental education center to live the solution rather than the problem was my idea back then. Uh, and, um, and then I spent a lot of time visiting intentional communities and, and eco-villages around um, Europe, driving around in the VW van, learning from each one of them. And... Um, and ended up at, living at Findhorn after I finished my PhD. And so I, I know quite a bit about the, the Global Eco-Village Network and also the transition town work with communities. And while I, I also completely agree that it's all about coming back to community, what I'm getting more and more towards is this 
what is my community? Everyone around me, like this intentional bubble forming community, this like we're all coming together and on a, on a clear slate, we're going to do this and, and do it right this time. What, what I've observed is that with no malintentions, that kind of project becomes a bubble because there's so much to do when you have to set up everything that all the focus collapses on the onto the inside of our mission and form because it's so hard to what you were saying, like distribute the, the tasks. Well, that sounds wonderful in theory, but you have an idea of how the tasks are best done. And when you when you hand over that power to somebody else, you also hand over a big part of your not getting it exactly how you want it because they're doing it their way. And, and then begins the social process of all of that and the decision-making process and the clarity of we can't micromanage everybody's decision, but what are the core elements, the core values, the core way of doing things that we set up, the enabling constraints and the complex dynamic system that we set up so positive things emerge. And, um, and that is bloody hard work and it takes a lot of time. And having lived at Findhorn and having seen also the dysfunctionalities of trying to do things together in that way, um, I'm now realizing that at this point in my life, I, I've just decided to move on to a piece of land and then invite community into that and use it as a catalyst for changing community in, in the wider area, rather than going the path of um, because I, I was close, I was thinking with three or four friends, are we going to set up a co-housing together? And every co-housing that I've seen emerge has taken at least minimum of three years. And about 40% of the people that were there in the beginning weren't there at the end. And it for anybody in that process, it took at least one third of their vital time during that process to make this thing happen. And I looked at my wife and I said, I, I, I don't, I can't do it right now. Like there is no, that third doesn't exist. And since you're in a similar situation, um, doing your work, having a little one and pushing this, like like more power to you. I'm not trying to <laughs> dissuade you in anything eh, or anything, but, it, but be aware that this is a, poof, this is going to be a pressure cooker of human development that you're co-creating there. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're aware of it. But at the same time, of course, we're not aware of how it'll go. We don't know. And and living at the age of that unknown is um, simultaneously exciting and terrifying. But I feel like that's where real change happens. So, yeah. And and we've we've been doing a lot of personal development and a lot of group work as well in our online community. So that's a huge focus for us we know that it's going to be a huge pressure cooker of human development. And uh, we know that, you know, some people might not be able to handle it or not want to engage in that transformation that they're going to have to go through, um, especially because all the conditioning of, of, you know, modern society is not, has not prepared a lot of people for living in community. So... Yeah, definitely aware of the challenges coming. Um, it's, but it's also really beautiful. I mean, I just want to not sound too negative about it because it is like, if I think back of the time that I lived at Findhorn, I, I, I realized that just living there, I learned so much by osmosis and by cultural patterns around me. And you just slot in with 
certain flaws and then you learn how those flaws actually enable things to happen. And, um, and it's a wonderful environment. Like that's why as an educational center, it, it, it so works so well because when people arrive there, they quite literally feel, they look around and they can, people look at you differently here and, and the pace is different. And the, the whole, like you over, over the years of hard work of the nitty gritty bit of community, you do build up a sort of energy field in a place that, that can be very transformative and, 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 and wonderful as well. Well, I'm interested to know some of the lessons, and maybe this is an opportunity to dive into your book as well. I can see it there behind you. Um, love the artwork for that. Um, but, you know, to dive into the book and, and some of the lessons that you've learned about designing regenerative cultures and, and what, kind of, um, what kind of things we can watch out for and apply early on, what lessons we can learn from you, that would be awesome. Uh, one of the central things in my book is is that I, I I kind of try to do a little bit of Aikido with the here's somebody who's trying to summarize 20 years of whole systems design on healthy human systems and a healthy biosphere. Because when when I sat down to write the book, I, I had this moment of, of a real, not writer's block, but a kind of like a mentor of mine 20 years ago, when I first mentioned that I wanted to write a book, um, said to me, why would you want to write a book? There are far too many books out there already. Is it going to make a difference? Are you going to write a work that works? Um, a work that works is an alchemical notion of being a touchstone, like that people wouldn't quite be the same after they put it down than they were when they first picked it up. And and that's kind of set the mark really high for me in, in writing this book. And, and initially that other big tomb up there, the green thing, um, is, is my PhD, which was 750 pages um, on design for human and planetary health. That, that was the first book I wrote. Um, but what I'm getting to is that in designing regenerative cultures, at the very beginning, I realized that if I was going to focus on solutions, answers, and hear the clear pathways of how to create a regenerative culture, then most likely some, not all, but some of what I was going to put in it would five or 10 years later not be that meaningful anymore because it, the, the context changed, the world changes, and it will, will have looked, would have looked pretty flat. Eh? Um, and in many ways, I, 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 when I was sitting with that, I realized that answers and solutions of today are most likely the causes of unforeseen consequences and problems tomorrow. That means that throughout most of history, the, the 0.5% of sociopaths and, and, and narcissists and that, that really want to fuck things up, they are out there. But most people are out there to try to create a better world. And, and whatever they did in the past, they, they did it thinking that that was the right thing. They were maybe not th thinking straight, but, but they, they did it from that point of view. And so, so for me, I believe that questions are much more powerful than answers and solutions. And that that doesn't mean that we have to just sit around and ask things and not do anything. Like creating solutions, creating answers is testing your questions, but the, the solutions and the answers are the transitory means to create better questions rather as we as a culture are taught to believe, ask a quick question so you can get to the answer. Yeah? And the answer isn't what matters as much as the question. And, 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 I'm saying this so long-windedly 
in response to your question is that for me, that is the core of creating regenerative cultures. It is about living the questions together. It is about understanding that you never get there, that there is no destination sustainability. There is no destination regenerative culture or smart village. It'll be a journey. And once you set out understanding that you're walking that pilgrimage and that the walk, the, the, the path is what matters and not the destination, you do the thing differently. And that's a major shift. And, and also what comes with creating a culture that is question rather than solution and answer centric, in that minute, somebody coming with this solution and somebody coming with that solution aren't diametrically opposed enemies that need to fight it out and be right or wrong. They're just, oh, well, solutions, answers, yeah, cool. Let's look at all of them, learn from all of them. They're all kind of transient, aren't they? Are they asking, are they answering to the right question? And suddenly you can hold the complexity of multiple points of views and multiple ways of doing things in a whole different way. And I think that is the big jump that we need to do, whether it's on the planetary level to find a solution out of this mess or on the small smaller level of human communities to like there's lots lots of talk we need to design as nature of learn from nature where people still create false dualisms between nature and culture in in that process but if we're really understanding ourselves as human beings as expressions of this wonderful planetary process called life then our diversity of opinions and our diversity of doing things and our diversity of worldviews is actually part of the juiciness of life, part of what creates creativity and creates um, novelty on the evolutionary journey. And, and I think that if we can, it's, I'm not going to say it's going to be easy because there's lots of people out there who are going to say, yeah, we, we need diverse opinions, but we don't need fucking Nazis. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like it's still holding the spectrum more than othering people uh, as much as there's lots of people that trigger me that I would like to other and that I probably am othering. When did you release the book? Because I, I've read through the passage um, about asking questions and about living mm-hmm. the question. And it seems so relevant in the last two years, but it seems like you've been ahead of that curve. Like haven't had the chance to witness the way Western culture has been evolving in the last two years. Well, the, the, the book came out in 2016, which when you when you understand the full publishing process means that I actually pretty much stopped writing it at the beginning of um, 2015 and, um, and really wrote it mainly in, in um, 2014. And, but, but it's the same, like, I, as I said, I wrote this PhD on design for human and planetary health, which came out in 2006. And people looked at me saying, planetary health, what's that? Now there's a planetary health alliance with 270 universities around the world researching the connection between planetary health and human health. And now that we've had the pandemic, everybody is talking about, oh yeah, we should pay attention to how ecosystem cells and planetary health is. It's it's like, I'm not saying how how clever am I? I've said said it first. I learned it from other people. This shit has been around for 50 years. Um, um, It's just slowly percolating into a wider awareness. I, I was so happy to hear you talk about 
asking the right questions. I've got a whole video plan with script written about asking the right questions that I've been waiting to start working on. It's such a critical thing that it's part of that reciprocal embodied knowing rather than having the answer and proceeding with like a recipe or a checklist of things and, and like forcing your idea onto other people or onto the environment. It's, uh, it just seems so much more in line with indigenous ways of knowing where there's, there's a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. But that, that's the, I mean, this whole thing of how do we truly work with complexity and honestly accept multiple ways of knowing? Because what we've been so trained in, uh, I mean, you're sm- smart people, I'm not completely daft, um, we're all trained in this somehow competitiveness of right ideas and wrong ideas and somehow the, the mind and the intellect and the, the analysis and, and the, the, the science being just the neater, the cleaner, the, the more real um, way of doing things. And to really let go of not let completely go of that because that's the other pendulum swing of, of people saying we don't need the mind we don't need analysis we don't need science that that would be madness as well but how do you place something that has become so powerful and has created such powerful technologies as the ones that that are connecting us right now um and then say honestly and truly and not in a tokenist way that a shaman in whatever way they, in their cultural context, see fit, whether it's through dancing, through ritual, or even through psychotropic plants, um, coming to a deeper connection with the wider flow of life. Like if our sciences are now saying everything is connected and and maybe consciousness is primary and not matter, and um, then maybe all their so-called primitive technologies are light years ahead of AI and Watson and all that shite. Uh-huh. Um, and how do you hold them next to each other without saying that you hang out in your village and somebody comes after having just smoked a big reefer and, and saying, oh, I have this intuition. I think we shouldn't call it smart village. I think we should call it um, Gaia. And let's just all dance around in the circle. And I'm not I'm not wanting to be dismissive of people who call things guy and dance around the circle. I've done that many times myself. I worked with guy education for many, many years. But it's this finding the right balance between these different worldviews and really appreciating science for what it can do. But how do you put it next to the qualitative, the embodied, the sense, stuff that doesn't quite feel right? Uh, like I trust my gut more than my brain and it's entirely based on experience that every time I tried to overrule my gut by, with my brain, it just caused lots of problems. Uh, but most cu- cultures don't work that way. Well, our Western culture doesn't. Yeah, the you know I've talked about this a bunch in the past. The 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 problem with with the way science is thought of or perceived today is this atomized materialistic truth finder like it it finds truth as opposed to it finds what is not true and what is most likely through a series of process of elimination of of different hypotheses so it's it's funny that people 
kind of rely on it is the absolute truth instead of what is most likely. It seems like that's the positioning of science that is most useful is when we we can at least figure out what's not true about a theory. Well, um, the way that I, like I, I did a mass, well, I did a, a, my undergraduate studies were, were in um, earth system science and um, biology, zoology, oceanography. Um, and I wanted to be a marine mammal biologist. And I got so disheartened um, seeing how using the reductionist method of, of creating quantifiable data points that I could put into the computer. At that point, it was still the little Mac, the, the square little box in a little caravan in Año Nuevo State Park. Um, it, it just felt completely disconnected with what I had experienced watching elephant seals during the breeding seasons for three months, knowing every baby that was born and when it was born, by whom and, and who came in and did what with what, what eh? and there was just so much more that I had perceived in those three months that I was able to speak about once the data was crunched. And, and that made me leave science and return to doing a master's in holistic science at Schumacher College when I found out that there was a, a scientific inquiry into working from the whole with the whole and in a more um, like acknowledging complexity way. And, and Brian Goodwin, who was the, the, the guy who founded um, that master's program and also with Stu together with Stuart Kaufman um, is, is one of the leading lights in, in, in building the foundations of complexity theory. Um, he always put it really simply that complex dynamic systems are fundamentally unpredictable and uncontrollable unless you bind them with certain boundary conditions of time and space. Then you can do prediction. And um, the minute you truly accept that unpredictability the whole edifice of that science as we know it has unfortunately ideologically been built on was an edifice of if we do better science we can better control and predict and manipulate the world out there it's a scary world and we need to control predict and manipulate it the minute you you say no actually mathematically fundamentally unpredictable um so might as well get used to it then the, the shift is towards appropriate participation. Um, how do we use science to participate appropriately in this whole that has brought us forth and that we're expressions of, that we're not separate from? The, the objective observer becomes a complete abstraction that is BS. It doesn't mm -hmm. exist, yes. <laughs> it, it, never, it never did. Uh, what, like Heisenberg said 100 years ago from a physicist's standpoint, what we observe is not nature, but nature exposed to our method of questioning. And that brings us back to the questions, and it brings us back to multi-perspectival things. And, and where I would differ a little bit is that it's not just about science telling us what's not true. The way that Brian Goodwin talked about it is that Science is an intersubjective consensus-making activity. It means if we use this method in this way, in this context, we can get results that are replicable, that somebody else can use the same method in the same, in the same context and get very similar results. And if we all do it regularly, we can see, approximate something that is obviously there because we, we, can, we can recreate it by the way we, we approach it. But that then puts that science next to another science in another way. Like um, 
and some wonderful people I've had the chance to, to meet in my life, like Arthur Zions, who's um, a physicist, leading physicist for laser light. And um, he, he was the professor for um, uh, light physics in at Amherst College. Um, and he also set up, together with um, Francisco Varela, the Mind Life Institute, these meetings between the Dalai Lama and leading scientists in one discipline where they compare Buddhist tantric knowledge with neuroscience or astrophysics or whatever. And, and he was an example of somebody who held in one person these different sciences. He was obviously a hot shot physicist knowing his stuff. Uh, but at the same time, he was the head of the Anthroposophical Society in, in, in the um, US and was a, one of the most practiced meditators I've ever come across. You know, these people that are just like, you, you see that they're like a rock because they, they know how to sit. Uh, and, um, and he always spoke about that, that we, need, we need a science of the contemplative, that there is a pathway through deep introspection, if, if the inner and the outer aren't actually separate, if mind and matter aren't as separate as we be believe it, you can get deep insight going inside. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and it, unfortunately to this day, there's lots of scientists who would listen to your podcast and probably kind of go, oh, that sounds a little bit woo-woo to me. And, and I don't want to diss their work, but why are they dissing everybody else's? Mm-hmm. What stood out to me about what you said was how much people are engaging in science and to, to try and control the outcomes and predict the outcomes out of a sense of mitigating fear of the unknown and the ambiguous and what is uncertain. I mean, how how much that comes up in your book and, and in conversation now about complexity science that you must be comfortable with ambiguity. You must learn to accept not knowing the answers and then proceed in that kind of um, lack of knowledge or in that darkness. Yeah, operate from un- not knowing. And some people scoff at that, like, oh, you just don't know what you're doing. Um, <laughs> and I often say that it's required to not know what you're doing if you want to allow for emergence, if you want for something new to emerge. Because if you, you know, if you're working with any kind of innovation, Uh, and you know exactly what you're doing, you're not innovating. You're just doing something that's already been done. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I left research science, because I just got so frustrated in trying to get research funding that these days you kind of ask, and and, and please tell us what your findings are. Uh, It's like, excuse me, I wouldn't be asking for half a million money of research money if I knew what my findings are going to be. I need to do the work before I have findings. But but there's, there's this sense of everything already being quite an- anticipatable of what you're definitely going to find. And th- that's not pure in- inquiry. Um, you know, there's also, uh, there are also a lot of incentives in the capitalist machine uh, for wanting certainty, because then you can predict things and, you know, you, you have income if you know exactly what's going to happen. So we talked with Douglas Rushkoff a while ago, And, um, you know, he studies media theory. And so he was talking about how, um, you know, big advertising AIs, um, not they're not like Facebook, for example, or Google. They're not just trying to predict your behavior and and 
say like, oh, this person is more likely to buy this or, or click on that or vote for this candidate, they're actually trying to influence your behavior to put you into those boxes to make it more predictable because then they're going to sell that data and it's going to be more valuable for the companies that stand to make billions of dollars from that data. And that's super dystopian. You know, they're actually trying to create more certainty by manipulating people's behavior. Well, the, the whole thing, why do we want certainty? Why do we want control? Why do we want prediction? Um, ultimately, it's a pathological fear of death. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Well said. Um, and, and it's that, and, and again, if we, to my mind, the only way that we're going to heal the severely damaged planet that we have damaged over through our behavior over the last 250 years and longer with the beginning of agriculture 5,000 years ago, um, is if we heal that false division that we're somehow other from it. And what I've realized in the last few months, really, in a different way again, um, like learning seems to always go in spirals. You come back to stuff that you thought about years ago. Um, it's it's quite spiritual in a way, in the sense that looking at all the wisdom traditions around the world that in any way speak of eternal life as a promise of eternal life. The big misunderstanding is the minute you see yourself as separate from the flow of life and you don't see life as a planetary process anymore, you can get overly lost in either species sort of um, Darwinian selection in the, in the misinterpreted way, kind of way, or you can get individualistic and just think about your own survival. But if you really come back to what all indigenous cultures hold in common to to my my understanding, um, which is that we don't have life. Life has us. We we don't. The earth doesn't belong to us. We belong to the earth. We, more than that, we're expressions of the earth. Um, then, on that level, life is immortal. Life has at least been going on, even from scientific perspectives, three point eight billion years on this planet, um, and it is probably more parsimonious if you want to use a scientific Occam's razor approach to think that there are lives on other planets if there are quite that many suns and solar systems out there from what we know. Um, that means that life might pervade, just like consciousness pervades everything, life might pervade everything. And the minute you see yourself just as an expression of that and merging back into it and re-merging from it with certainty, you don't necessarily have the same fear and attachment to one particular lifetime and one particular cycle in that process. And, and, and so for me, that's also like, if we, if we can revisit the ancient wisdom of indigenous cultures and bring it and merge it with scientific insight, and then have a conversation about what technologies actually serve and what technologies have made us their servants, then I think we, we have a chance of, of um, creating a future that, that will slow us down, that will pay attention to the qualities of relationships, the quality of information, the quality of interaction, and not just quantify, quantify, and more, 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 and faster, faster, faster. Um, that's part of the disconnect that, that we're running down that track of trying to do 
more and faster. Yeah. And it seems that a lot of that has to do with um, people have in, you know, Western ways of living, they're completely disconnected from reality, I would say, from, from those cycles of life, from death and rebirth, from uh, how nature actually affects human life. And I don't mean to say that as nature is separate, but, you know, natural complex systems, um, yeah, humans have tried to insulate themselves from them. Mm. And uh, so it seems to me that just having those ideas from indigenous wisdom is not enough because if people don't have the embodied experience of them, then they're just going to remain in that idea realm. Uh, you know, in in older cultures, people went through rites of passage and, and had to experience things for themselves that would actually transform their whole physiology and their whole sense of perception. Um, and we don't have that anymore in in western cultures well luckily there are more and more pathways emerging that br are bringing that back into western culture i'm sort of thinking of john young and the h shields teachings and in california you have the the um school of lost borders uh, like i i've i've done a vision quest with school of lost borders in the india mountains and and i i think that Part of what's wrong with our culture is that that we have uninitiated teenagers, no matter how old they are, running countries as big as the one that you live in. Yeah. Um, and and if you look, most of the U.S. presidents show exactly the traits of an uninitiated teenager, not 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 a, not necessarily a world leader. Um, um, and so I I think you're absolutely right. It's not just about a learned knowledge, it's a lived, lived knowledge. But the, the bit about nature connection, I find really interesting because of course we need to bring much more more than human life back into the cities um, in order for people not to have that sort of experience devoid of the deeper biophilic nourishing connections. Like I, I experienced this in a very physical way. Here in Spain, the, the, the lockdown was incredibly um, hard in the policing, like it, it was, psychologically making it even harder because it really gave a window and what it would be like to live in a police state where the police patrol the streets and you have to kind of scoop from one corner of the other if you dare to go out at the wrong time breaking the curfew or whatever and and um so i did stay in a lot of time and one of the things you could do is take your bins recycling to the recycling station and one time walking back from the recycling station after we'd been locked in a flat for th basically three weeks with a little roof terrace and a couple of pot plants. Uh -huh. um, I stood under a tree and I just felt like there was a, like something rushing into me, like a real, in a, like an energy exchange, but much more like an osmotic rebalancing, like something was empty in me and was just bloop, dumping into me from that tree. And it, and I think that connection is what, what what you're speaking of. When we have created environments where there isn't enough of that sort of pranic field communicating with us from other life forms like animals and and plants, but but at the same time, I think we're really challenged to look at technology in a way that includes it into a new conception of the world and life like if if as much as i'm 
maybe a little bit Luddite with some technologies. Um, I think as long as we make the technology other, then we can make culture other, and then we continue the nature-culture divide. Um, to some extent, and Goethe said this over 200 years ago, he who doesn't see nature everywhere sees her nowhere in the right light. And, and when you take that insight to, the, to heart, then you actually have to sit in front of your computer, meditate on it and say, this is nature too. The molecules and atoms in this have cycled through Gaia, have been the, born in the, like the, the gold atom, atoms in my, my MacBook. They need collapsing stars to create the pressure and the heat to actually forge that heavy, those heavier atoms. So, so that piece of wedding ring has been born in the death of a star. And if we think of those deep time cycles, then everything is part of that cycle. Then there is no separation. Yeah. Yeah. I like to think of the other ways that nature creates technology, just to put things into perspective. You know, for example, the spider's web, it's uh, also technology. And the spider externalizes a part of his cognition to his web, just like we externalize part of our cognition to computers. It's the same thing. And, you know, just like computers are dead in a way, because we, we've created them and they're no longer part of a living system and then they eventually disintegrate and re-enter the living systems. In the same way, a spider's webs are dead, but there's nothing, you know, wrong about them and we're not trying to demonize a spider's web. Or, you know, nails or hair, they're also technology. They're dead cells in a way. But, yeah, it's an interesting way to think about it. We, we are part, why, why do we as peculiarly evolved monkeys have this huge frontal cortex? Because we're tool users. We, we are really good at working with, like the, the, the printing press was a technology that completely and utterly transformed us. Yeah? And whether you have the technology out there or the technology in here is, is just a step. Like, so this whole conversation about cyborgs, there's a, there's a philosopher at the University of Edinburgh that, that wrote a book quite a few years ago called Natural Born Cyborgs. Like we, we are these merged beings from the beginning. Um, from when, when, like the the famous scene in two thousand and one, when the when the monkey starts picking up the bone and, and shakes it, uh, um, it that's a that's a moment of tool use that that has shaped us as as human beings. But um, again, the question is appropriate participation. How how do we how do we um, evaluate those technologies and make sure that they're not all, maybe even the ones that we're just using to speak to each other. Maybe they're maladaptive pathways. Maybe they're, like Kurt Vonnegut said, next time without brain. Um, maybe they're just not really conducive to life. And, and what I find a bit strange, particularly in, from people coming out of the Bay Area, this, this, this sort of technology has almost become another religion. It's like I had a conversation with, with, with Michel Bowens about this um, recently, and, and he mentioned a French philosopher who also writes about this. And, and basically all the things that previously the religions did, eternal life, like 
Ray Kurzweil and Hans Moravec and all these dudes who are just popping pills like crazy, waiting for science to evolve fast enough so they can live forever. It's the same thing as paying the Pope some money to be absolved and, and give get eternal life in the afterlife. Yeah, it's 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 all the impulses of again fear of death by not understanding deeper connections that make us immortal from the start. Yeah. Um I and for me to almost come full circle, you asked me about my daughter earlier and and, and you you were just with your son. The magic from that moment where one of your cells and one of your cells merged and a journey started where that went from, from two to four to eight to 16 and eventually started going through the entire evolutionary journey of being fish, of being chicken, of being mammal, and then closely becoming what you now hold in your hands. That what you felt and you saw what happened to your body and how life knows this and how every day your son makes new neural connections and learns stuff. Can you please remind me that you think that my Apple MacBook is really hot cracking shit technology and really knows what it's doing? I think it's pretty damn crude compared to that. It's nothing. Like what, what we're so proud of as technology compared to what life does every second uh, is dilettante. Uh, and we need to recognize it instead of being so blind to, oh, yeah, but it's really cool and we can do this. Uh, it's like, let's be humble and see what life can do and is doing for us every minute. Mm. Like I have, I had a 103-year-old grandmother who had a muscle in her chest for 103 years that didn't miss a fucking beat. Apple, challenge. Uh, never going to get there. Okay, that was it for this part of the conversation with Daniel Christian Wall. If you want to hear the whole two-hour episode, become a member at futurethinkers.org slash members. And you'll find the show notes at futurethinkers.org slash 131. To RSVP for the Q&A with Daniel on October 29th at 11 a.m. Pacific, go to futurethinkers.org slash wall, W-A-H-L. To RSVP for our monthly Smart Village Summit with James Ehrlich from Regen Villages and other guests, just go to futurethinkers.org slash summit. And if you're interested in learning more about the regenerative smart village that we're building in British Columbia, Canada, go to futurethinkers.org slash village. And if you or someone you know is interested in investing in the project, click at the contribute button on the page and fill out the form. If you just want to help out with the project, one of the best ways to do that is to share that page with your network. Thanks for listening and see you in the next episode. If you like this content, you might want to check out our seven ways to adapt to the future guidebook. Get it for free at futurethinkers.org slash sign up. You might also want to check out our Future Thinkers membership area. We have courses there to help you adapt to the changing world, build resilience, upgrade culture and society, and create meaning and purpose in your life. As well, you'll get access to our community, all of our unreleased content, private Zoom calls, live Q&As with guests, workshops and events, and more. Just go to members.futurethinkers.org. And if you enjoyed this video, please like, share, and comment. It really helps out our show more than you know. And if you want more like it, then subscribe and hit that bell icon to be notified of new videos. See you next time.